in the making. <laughs> and 3,000 victims later, welcome to my nightmare. The two greatest legends of terror. We're not safe awake or asleep. Come together in the biggest movie in America. New Line Cinema dares you to see who will win. Why won't you die? And what will be left of them? Somebody please wake me up! Freddy vs. Jason rated R. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in once again to The Pod and the Pendulum, your horror movie podcast that is dedicated to covering every single horror movie franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. Sometimes one movie in multiple episodes, and that's what we're here for tonight. I am joined by my co-host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing? I am doing great. I'm excited to talk about this movie. And not Dominic Necros this time. Oh, I think this is going to be all Dominic <laughs> Necros all the time. We should so, just rename our podcast that. Yeah, Dominic Necros. We have to, if we were, it has to be the Dominic Necros experience, I think is oh. how that has to go. Doesn't that sound like a band that would go on tour with like Frank Zappa as the opener? <laughs> oh, Jesus, it does. Oh my God, it really fucking does. We are joined once again uh, with our special guest co-host, Alex Def- Oh my goodness. Alex, can you pronounce your last name for me? <laughs> this is how this episode's going to go right now. It's okay. It's been a long night. Uh, it's pronounced DiVincenzo. Thank you, Alex. So Alex is the uh, co-owner of BrokeHorrorFan.com, as well as a director of a number of short horror movies, including The Horrors of Autocorrect. And I thought we would start tonight, Alex. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Broke Horror Fan and some of your movies? I would love to do that. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Broke Horror Fan is a website I started, uh, it was five years ago now, which is mm-hmm. kind of crazy. Um, I had written for a number of other horror outlets. Um, I wrote for Dread Central, Hour in the Head, um, Horror Hound, and a few others. And I, I enjoyed it, but it was one of those things where it was like, they're not paying well, if at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of got tired of doing the same old like news cycle that everyone else is doing, which don't get me wrong, those outlets in particular do it very well, um, along with the other big horror sites. Um, but it was just like, I don't know, it became tedious and I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I wanted to start my own thing, but I didn't want to, again, didn't want to do the same thing just under a new name. Um, so I started Broke Horror Fan to kind of fill the niche of people who just love horror merchandise. That's the whole point of the site, just to highlight all the cool horror stuff out there from DVDs, posters, records, toys, anything under the sun that is mm-hmm. horror movie related. You can probably find it on my site and there'll be a link to buy it. Um, within Broke Horror Fan, about a year ago, we launched a line of VHS movies. Um, they're modern horror films on fully functioning limited edition VHS, which we're really excited about. We launched with Adam Green's Victor Crowley last year. Mm-hmm. Um, we released a lot of other cool titles of uh, Terrifier, Kevin Smith's Yoga Hosers, um, Adam Rifkin's Director's Cut, uh, a lot of cool stuff. And we have a few other big titles in the works that I can't announce yet. But okay. um, before the end of the year, there'll be another few exciting titles that people will know from filmmakers they know. What so that's it? been really exciting. So how has that how has that been received? Like how have because a lot of people would look at 
VHS tapes now and be like, what the hell is this? How has that been? I mean, even DVDs right now that's going like 20 years from now, you might be going, yeah, we're launching like DVDs, uh, special edition of that. So how has that been received so far? Uh, we have gotten a lot of what the hell is this, so I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. But um, the, what we what we pride ourselves in is it's kind of, we call it a functioning collectible because mm-hmm. it, the movie is on the tape, oftentimes with some kind of exclusive introduction from the filmmaker whenever possible. Um, and we try to get letters from the filmmakers as well. Um, so you can actually sit down and watch it. And I will say some of these movies are an entirely different experience on VHS. There's something about, like, I think... Like, Terrifier has, like, a very, obviously, 80s horror mm-hmm. style to it. And I think, personally, it plays 100 times better chess than it does watching it in HD. But, I mean, that's mm-hmm. down to personal opinion. Um, I will say the, the filmmakers love it, because, I mean, they're all people who grew up in the, the video age. And, like, I think for some of them, to see their movie on VHS is kind of a surreal thing. Mm-hmm. So that's been really cool. And all the filmmakers so far have been super receptive to it. Um, and they're fans as well. So we try, sometimes we, if the budget allows it, we commission new artwork, which we're, we're excited about. We're working with some really cool artists. Um, sometimes the film will already have, like Director's Cut, for example, already had this awesome poster that looks like an 80s horror movie. So that worked out well. Um, so it's been really cool. Uh, uh, it's something, I mean, if you asked me a few years ago if I ever thought I was going to make a VHS tape, I would have mm-hmm. said no, but now I've made like a thousand of them. So it's cool. How do you, feel because i'm just taking a look right now and it looks like you go from like the 16 by 9 aspect ratio to like the 4 by 3 like what we would how we would have experienced this movie back in like the 80s and early 90s before dvd and before hd tv became a thing it's not only the um resolution that's different but also the aspect ratio that's different that, um, that's 100% correct that's the first question we ask as soon as we get get mm-hmm. the filmmaker involved like, do you mind if we crop your movie? And so far, everyone's been cool. Like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So okay. I, I personally I personally do the the cropping myself mm-hmm. to make sure nothing's lost in, in translation. Because if you just put, if you just squash a 16 by 9 or, or cut off the sides, you know, you're going to get characters cut off and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I, I oversee that myself uh, to make sure it is the best possible presentation. Um, I mean, all of our tapes are super limited. So it might only, I might be doing it for only 50 people or whatever, but it, it's worth mm-hmm. it for, for the people who are going to sit down and watch it. I think it really makes a difference. Like I was saying, like the movies like Terrifier or like we have a cool, really cool monster movie called Book of Monsters that has that 80s feel and it really sells it on VHS. Mm-hmm. This is a, this looks really cool. It's a really neat idea. It's definitely like an outside of the box idea. And I think it's really neat. I think if you're there's of a, a certain age. There's a uh, there's a recent uh, slasher movie in the last few years that I love. And on the special feature uh part of the blu-ray screen factor released kind of like a vhs looking cut of the movie mm-hmm. and i remember watching it it's called fender bender and i remember watching it thinking like man this looks so much better on the kind of vhs like cut of the film like i wish that this would be on vhs yeah and there's it, something it, it, there's something uh, about but, like that 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 look of digital it just i don't know for these movies that are supposed to be gritty and not not only supposed to be but are very low budget mm-hmm. but these tributes to the movies from the days that we love there's just something kind of lost in translation i mean they still play well they're still fun movies but i don't know there's just something something nostalgic about even though it wasn't released in that era it just feels like it fits perfectly in there and then even if you don't we do have people if you don't own your vcr anymore or you're too young to ever have ever owned a vcr 
I mean, they're also really cool collectibles. Like I said, they're right. all limited. Um, they look really good on a shelf. I won't lie. Like, I have mine displayed. I'm super proud of mm -hmm. them. And like I said, we do really cool artwork for them. How do you handle the difference in resolution? Like, like a v VHS tape can do, what, 280 or 330 lines versus someone that might be playing this back on, you know, a 1080p or even a 4K television? Uh, I mean, we definitely recommend you watch it if you have, can get or have an old tube TV. I mean, it, it does sell it better on that mm -hmm. if you're watching, you know, an old VCR with your with your red, yellow, white audiovisual cables. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have people who, you know, they they might have picked up a VCR at the Goodwill or whatever, but they just plug it into, like you said, their their 60 inch TV. Sure. And I mean, it still works. It's still, I mean, it's it's still you're getting the VHS experience. Maybe not quite to the full effect, but I mean, no mm -hmm. begrudging anybody, however they choose to watch them. Mm -hmm. And I've come to know your film work, again, through your horror comedy, um, The Horrors of Autocorrect, which is a really fun short movie that played at the Boston Underground Film Festival. Was that 2017? Am I right about the year? Uh, that would have been 16, Oof, I believe. Okay. And I believe it was part of the um, Hometown Horrors block program by uh, my friend Chris Halleck every year. Um, phenomenal writer uh, in his own right and all around a plus human being. Um, tell us about your yeah, tell us about your short work. Like what are you working on now and you know where how do you kind of style yourself as a filmmaker? Um ooh loaded question. I like it. Um so I had worked yeah I worked I'm a, on a I'm a counselor of... man. I'm a, I'm a therapist. <laughs> I'm gonna ask some deep questions. Dig right in there. Um so I, I'd worked on a number of local independent features um, over the years. Uh, I know you're a local guy. I don't know if you're familiar with Richard Griffin's work. Oh, He's a we, Rhode Island filmmaker. He used to screen, I think I screened, I'll tell you a Richard Griffin story after this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that's that's kind of where I got my start, at least where I, where I learned how to make a movie with no budget, basically, mm -hmm. and still make it look halfway decent. Mm -hmm. Um so after working on a few of his, I was like, you know what, this is something, I mean, I knew I wanted to do it, but now I was like, now I have the resources in terms of people who can help me do it. So like I said, I think 2015 is when I actually made Horrors of Autocorrect, I believe. That was my first short. Mm -hmm. um, it's basically kind of like, a. it starts out as a send up to Scream, and then it devolves into a, a horror comedy between a, a killer and his would-be victim in a text conversation, and mm -hmm. a comedy of errors with Autocorrect ensues. Um, and I'm really proud. It's definitely very, I look back on it now and I'm like, Ooh, there's a lot of amateurish mistakes of like, you know, eye lines that are messed up or just certain things I wish I did better. But I mean, that's the life of a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was super well received. Um, Eli Roth's Crypt TV picked it up. In fact, mm -hmm. if you want to, if you're listening to this and you want to see it, uh, it's only on their Facebook page. Unfortunately, it, had, it never made the migration over to their YouTube, but if you Google the horrors of autocorrect, Crypt TV. Um, it'll be like the first result on their Facebook page. You can watch it there. It's only like six minutes. Like I said, I think it's fun. It is and fun. Th thank you. I really appreciate that. And after that, I made a couple others. A um, movie called Trouser Snake that also played at Buff. Um, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's like a, a send up of 50s monster movies, but the mm -hmm. monster is a penis. Um, <laughs> and after that, I kind of wanted to, to not do so much comedic stuff. I mean, I did another, like I did a fake trailer for one of Richard's movies. It's obviously very uh comedic 
But I, I wanted to do some stuff a little bit more serious. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on lately. Uh, my most recent short that's that's online, went online earlier this year, is called The Misplaced. Uh, mm-hmm. That one also played Boston Underground last year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of my, it's only four minutes. You can find it on YouTube if you look up The Misplaced Horror Short Film. We'll put a link uh, to it on the show notes, yeah. Uh, thank you, thank you. Um, it's It's kind of my... My attempt at doing like a straight horror thing, you know, fast paced, kind of in and out, almost mm-hmm. like a like a lights out type. That was kind of that inspiration of doing like a horror set piece that stands on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of inspired by the stuff that creeps me out, which is like like Halloween and the strangers, kind of when when horror is is in your home. Very um, cool. And nothing like cemented right now, but I haven't directed anything in like a year and it's killing mm-hmm. me. So I'm hoping to make, I have a, sh- a short written that I wrote with a friend of mine that I'm hoping to produce before mm-hmm. the year's end and maybe even get into buff next year. But we'll see right. about that. I am going to send you a script in the near future that I'm going to polish off. That Oh, please do. Right. I would love to see it. Yeah, it's a um, Halloween by way of Wizard of Oz type of deal. Um, I'm just sold. Need, Those yeah. are two right. incredible um okay so re- quick richard mars richard mark griffin story who i adore and love uh and michael Ferrati from our part five episode wrote sins of dracula directed by richard griffin um that was the one of the last movies so when i ran all things horror every month at the somerville theater we screened indie horror movies we did the battery we did uh american mary dead hookers in a trunk dawning it was my life for five years. I made some amazing friends through it. We screened a ton of Richard Griffin movies. We did Disco Exorcist, Exhumed. Um, we did Murder University at a bigger event where it screened alongside American Mary as the East Coast premiere of that movie. Um, and we and did Sins of Dracula. Uh, oh, we also did, like I think, uh, Count Orlock's I can't think of it. it's Count um, Dr. <laughs> uh, Dr. Frankenstein's Wax Museum of the Hungry Dead, which is so much fun. <laughs> yes. um, and I am one of the hosts from uh, a Telluride Horror Film Festival every year, and we had an opening on a Sunday morning. And I begged the um, I begged Ted, who runs the fest, like we have an opening. Let's show Future Justice. It's a fun movie. It's sci-fi horror. Let's just show it. So he's like, fine, we'll show it. And I did the intro and I'm like, anyone who doesn't like this movie, you can punch me in the face later. So he showed the movie. <laughs> later on, I'm walking down the street and I hear from across the street, yo, host. And I turn around and this guy's like, you're going to get punched in the face. And I'm like, what the fuck? But I love that movie. I love the crew he works with. Um, his actors are incredible. Um, Sarah Nicklin is one of my... I have a huge crush on Sarah Nicklin. And also um, Samantha Amakapora. Amic- uh, I just I think she's just lovely and so talented. Um, but my goodness, Sarah Nicklin is just so talented and lovely and incredible in everything that she's in. Um, Richard asked me to change a line in my review for The Disco Exorcist, and I refused to do it. It involves beefaroni and face-sitting, um, and you can look it up on my old site, which is pretty much defunct. Um, all right, so what are we here to talk about tonight, boys? Jerry, I am so sorry to make you sit <laughs> Feel no, there? no, no. It's okay. Uh, we are here for Freddy versus Jason. Uh, the last episode was leading up to it, and now we are here for the showdown. Freddy versus Jason, place your bets. 
So where do we want to start, my friends? I think if you want to hear our recap of what went into this, go back and listen to part one of this episode because we did recover that in a ton of detail overall. But where we are right now, we have a script writer. We have script writers in Shannon and Swift. Um, and Jerry, you were just saying you were reading some interesting tidbits about them from making this. What did you find out? There is an excellent interview with Shannon and Swift that Trace Thurman over at Bloody Disgusting did back in 2016. Uh, They had some really good things to say, uh, aside from the fact that a lot of their script was actually rewritten after the fact. The original script they wrote was 120 pages. Studio wanted something closer to 90, so they brought David Gower back in Mm -hmm. uh, to basically rewrite it he cut a lot of stuff added a lot of stuff and a lot of the stuff that a lot of people are very nitpicky about with the film were stuff it was stuff that was added from their script like stuff Mm -hmm. that they didn't even write uh the homophobic slur the weird alternative uh alternate ending that was on the dvd that wasn't theirs there's a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. that i mean Ronnie Yu had his own hand in it. So, I mean, I can understand where the film would get into this weird thing of having a lot of these forced exposition moments, uh, you know, when, when the teens drive drive uh, somewhere that should take eight or nine hours and they get there in five minutes. That was another thing that was rewritten in the script. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's an interesting look at, and I would definitely, we could post it when we post the episode, but it's a definitely an interesting uh, interview with them that I would highly recommend. Okay. So what do we think of the choice of Ronnie Yu? Because he comes on board. He, at that point, had been best known for The Bride of Chucky. And he brought a really frantic energy to that movie. It begins to take the series in a much campier, sillier direction. And New Line offers him the job based on that, uh, based on that movie. What do we think of him as a choice? Uh, I I am not a fan of Ronnie Yu directing this movie. Uh, you know, it's been notoriously reported that Ronnie Yu really didn't have love for the characters. You know, he, he really didn't care. He thought it was a silly idea. Uh, his, his thoughts towards Jason, I think, are kind of shitty. Uh, you know, you know, like, yeah, Kane Hodder had argumentally, like, the four worst Friday 13th films under his belt but he was amazing in all of them and i think for to get freddy versus jason and to make the active choice to replace kane hodder because you want someone taller than freddy mm-hmm. like it, it's silly and I, I think it's a slap to the face not only to kane hodder who obviously took it pretty hard but to fans i mean fans wanted to see robert versus kane that is freddy and that is jason you know and to to hire someone who really didn't give a shit about either character that says a lot because both franchises have fan bases and to get someone who doesn't give a fuck about the fan bases whatsoever it kind of sucks yeah uh, it's weird that they spent so much time looking for the right writers but seems like they didn't put so much effort into finding the director because i believe ronnie you said no at first and they like begged him well, probably they, gave him a big spent, paycheck. They spent six million, upwards of six million dollars on the script section of developing the movie. You know, yeah, six exactly. million dollars, and we got Dominic Necros, and then they hire <laughs> Ronnie Yu. Like, like it, it's such a weird choice. Like uh, Justin Edwards, who used to write for Icons of Fright and some other sites, he and I had this long-running joke that we would start a hardcore punk band called Ronnie Fuck You. 
because because <laughs> <laughs> he was such a bad choice to direct a film which is basically you know and i don't mean this basically supposed to be fan service it is freddy versus jason to so to get someone who doesn't really isn't a fan and doesn't care about the fans like it it seems kind of detrimental i understand the choice on paper because he did kind of revive uh the Chaz Play franchise with Bride of Chucky. It made a lot of money. It was like, it's a pretty solid movie. Um, but again, they had so many, especially once they got the the Shannon Swift draft, they, I mean, they're obviously fans of the genre, of the films. It seems mm-hmm. counterintuitive to then get somebody who not only dislikes them, I mean, not only isn't a fan, but outwardly dislikes them. Like, he does, I will say, he makes some cool stylistic choices. Um there's some very interesting, like he does some the colorful lighting that almost makes it look like a comic book, which some people probably yeah. hate, but I, I kind of enjoy it. Um, I like that. So, so like, so he get, brings some cool visual flair to it, but you can definitely feel there's there's a disconnect with with the characters, um, even though they're they're written true to form, but the way they're portrayed isn't necessarily true to well, how we know them. That and I, I feel like when it comes to a slasher film, the the entries and the sequels that the the fans. Uh, and horror lovers reson- that they resonate with are the ones where you can tell the director gave a shit. Exactly. I mean, you know, Joseph Zito cared about making a movie where you felt bad when the kids died. That's what got his final chapter. Tom McLaughlin cared about giving fans an entertaining movie. Jason goes to hell. Ronnie Yu, he didn't care about the characters. And anytime he would run himself into a corner during filming, he would throw a fit and like, you know, basically just berate the actors. Like, that is not a way to direct a movie. It's definitely not a way to direct a huge spectacle movie like Freddy vs. Jason. I want to read a quick uh, brief section from Peter Brackey's Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, and exactly what Ronnie Yu felt heading into the movie. Because uh, I think it crystallizes exactly what you said, Jerry and Alex. I think you n- kind of nailed it. Bob Shea asked me if I had seen any of the Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. I said no. He said, you mean no Jason, no Freddy? But I think my lack of knowledge about Freddy and Jason worked in my favor. A studio note, it didn't. But the studio (laughs) was looking for somebody who could come in with a fresh take and some new ideas. Then they gave me the script and I said I needed it and said I needed to tell them yes or no right now because they waited for so long. Nine years or something like that. They also wanted to start in two months. I had to come out to America in May 2002, and they were supposed to prep by June. So I read it, but I still said, thank you, I'm heading back. And they said, why, why, why? I said, I'm not sure about the script. I think it needs some massaging. But then Bob and the other New Line executive said, Ronnie, do whatever you want to make it right, to feel comfortable. So that's where he went in. And then he says... It wasn't until after I accepted it, I started to think, oh, God, I hope that this Chinaman doesn't screw this up, which is really fucking weird. But okay, (laughs) that's kind of odd. So, yeah, like to your point, guys, like he doesn't have a passion for these characters in a movie that only exists because of the passion of the fan bases. Yeah, it was almost almost willed into existence by fans. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Like, how? And, you know, I understand that, like, yes, Bride of Chucky is pretty well received. And 
his um, movie, The Bride with White Hair, got a lot of attention over here. But you're telling me, and this is a time when Eli Roth is coming to be, Rob Zombie is saying he wants to make movies. There's a number of, like, Peter Jackson. Could you not have given this to Peter Jackson? Like you don't Although, think he- if, if we got Rob Zombie's... Uh, it would have sucked. Jason. I know. We, I know. We would definitely have Dominic Negros. We we would have. It would have. But you would have. I mean, my, I think my point more being is like there's a number of like up and coming young yeah, sure. horror makers here that love these movies. Like, was Joe Lynch making movies by 2002? <laughs> I feel like he was. Enough features yet, but okay. He was doing music videos primarily. I think. Yeah. Jesus, I am so talking out of my ass this episode already. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, no. Uh, no, I and uh, the production of Freddy versus Jason, I mean, it had its hiccups just like the pre-production. I mean, Brad Rinfro was originally cast as the lead, the Jason Ritter role, and I mean, he was in such a bad place in his life that they had to fire him like pretty much right not away. Too, not right away. And then we got Jason Ritter who I mean, I think Jason Ritter's good in the movie. Uh, I mean, obviously, son of the great, you know, John Ritter. Uh, Who was I, in I, Ronnie Hughes, Bride of Chucky. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think some of the casting is good. Uh, definitely some missteps along the way. I, I, I think maybe it's the wrong movie for Kelly Rowland. But, uh, I mean, it had its issues all throughout the production. So, I mean, it, it's going to have its, its hiccups. But I think when it's all said and done... It is a pretty entertaining movie. It just it definitely has its warts to it. Mm-hmm. So let's hop right into talking about I think the biggest controversy that Jerry you touched on briefly. Kane Hodder is replaced as Jason Voorhees after playing the role four times in A New Blood, Jason Takes Manhattan, Jason Goes to Hell. And Jason X. And I think it's really criminal that Kane Hodder never got a classic Friday the 13th movie to make it and to play the character. Because I think he would have knocked it out of the park. Well, not what? only that, like, you go from, okay, it would have been great, but at the same time, giving Kane Hodder the script, kind of giving him the idea that he has the role, and then he has to find out secondhand that he got recast with a guy that said he was his double in Jason Takes Manhattan but was only in one scene maybe two at the most like this such a mm-hmm. you know what I mean like such a uh, it would leave it such a bad taste mm-hmm. in my mouth around and Alex I'm interested to hear from you because at this point you've never even seen a Jason movie correct yes the first time I saw Freddy versus Jason I, I hadn't seen okay. I'd only seen the first Friday 13 so is somebody that is approaching the series and seeing Jason for the first time, like, and but you had known about Jason and known kind of what a big deal he was. What was your impression of the character walking out of Freddy versus Jason? Like, how did you feel about seeing that portrayal on screen? Uh, that's a good question. I never really thought about that. Um, and to be honest, like as a fan now, I do think like it, it's it's a huge insult to Kane Hodder. Like, I can't defend their decision by any means. But without that knowledge, like, obviously, we're it's a very vocal fan base, but, like, the average viewer who doesn't know who the hell has ever played Jason, like, it probably didn't make a difference, because it didn't to me. Um, he was, it was weird that he was so tall, because I don't think Jason was ever that tall in any of the other ones. Um, but other than that, I mean, I thought Ken Kersinger did well with the material, but, like, certainly Kane Hodder deserved the role. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he, he just comes off very, uh, and this is no offense to King Kersinger, but uh, Jason comes off very dopey in Jason for <laughs> Freddy versus Jason. Do you think? Kind of like, think he, like, like, like Jason's been like smoking out the entire like time leading up to it. <laughs> Whereas, like, the, Kane, the, is that the portrayal or is that the makeup? Nothing gets the no, makeup. I, I, I you know, to be honest, I think that's Ronnie Yu. Because yeah, at true. the same time, he, Ronnie Yu gave Ken Kersinger instructions on how to portray him, how to he walk. Those sympathetic eyes or whatever. He, he wanted that. He wanted uh, a Jason that was a lot slower, not as calculative yeah. and like mean as the Kane Hodder Jason. And I think after seeing four films with that Jason, that's what fans have come to expect. <laughs> so it, it is, I mean, obviously to the casual poor fan or someone that isn't as, I think, passionate about it as a lot of other horror fans is like I, I don't think maybe it's that big of a deal but if if you are a super huge friday 13th fan and you walk into freddy versus jason for the first time you could totally tell the differences in in the jason and it's it's just so weird after getting so many movies where jason you know as as we've said many times on this podcast throughout the different episodes jason goes from being scared to basically a pissed off dad approach mm-hmm. the jason the jason goes to hell or the J- Freddy vs. Jason portrayal of Jason is like that younger brother who's really into Cold Chamber that nobody understands, so he just sits along walking around by himself. You know what I mean? Like, that's not my Jason. It's, yeah. It's kind of amazing when you look at the timeline that he played, Kane Hodder played Jason over a span of, of what, like over 10 years between New Blood and then Jason X. And then, like, um, Freddy vs. Jason came out, what, two years after Jason X? And he, and he didn't get the role. It, it's kind of incredible when you look at it. And I think part of it, too, part of what makes it such a slap to the face is no one to this day will give Kane or anyone a definitive answer as to why he didn't get it. Um, even Ronnie Yu has said, like, well, the studio didn't really want him. I didn't care either way. The studio has said Ronnie didn't want him. He was looking for something different. Um, Kane has said he got one offer. It was a low ball. He thought that would be a negotiating point. No one has ever said, like, Kane, this is why we didn't give it to you. And it, it's really heartbreaking, I think, because, you know, Jerry, you had said, like, this is not your Jason. Like, it's okay. The portrayal's not bad. Like, Ken Kersinger is by no means bad in this movie. And I think you could have dropped him into any of the Friday the 13th movies where you had, like, a one-and-done type of Jason, which really it had been up until Kane Hodder. And he would have been fine. Like, you would have... I think you would have looked... Like, if he was Jason in part three, or if he was... If he played the role of, like, part two Jason, you would have been fine with it. Like, you would have looked back probably pretty fondly on it. But this is such a big movie. And for someone like Kane Hodder, it's really his first chance to get this real, like, mainstream acceptance. Because you know this is going to be... This goes on to make more than all of the Friday the 13th that Kane Hodder was in in combined. Um, And he had made this role his own. He had brought such a physicality to it. Again, I'm going to read a quick quote from Greg Nicotero um, about Kane Hodder as Jason. Jason is so much about body language. Kane had spent a lot of time perfecting that. Kane really finessed that performance. And there are a lot of people that don't understand that. Certain performers bring a character to life or kill it. So when you see another guy in Jason's outfit in Freddy vs. Jason, you know it's not Kane. I thought it was really sad, 
that he didn't get a chance to continue that. He really believed that his nuances brought Jason to life, and they did. And he's right. I mean, this would have given – this is really part of the reason it's Robert Englund's movie and uh, Freddie's movie is because, to quote Stephen Culp, it's just a stunt double playing the role. Just a stunt well, guy. The, it's, it's that toxic fucking lame-ass mentality that that a lot of studios get into. I mean, when they tried to recast Freddy Krueger in part two for a few mm-hmm. shots before they realized that's a Whoops. bad idea. Yeah. It's this idea that, oh no, it's just a guy in a mask. They don't understand nuances. There's mm-hmm. films that I don't like, but the portrayal of people behind the mask make it interesting. I'm not a huge fan of the second Strangers movie. It just, it didn't it didn't hit with me. But Damien Maffei, or however you pronounce his name, was so good in that role behind a mask. You know, you could tell Kane Hodder is playing Jason. You could mm-hmm. tell each person's playing Jason. You could tell which person's playing Michael Myers. They're not just men in masks. They're very mm-hmm. crucial to how a film lands. They're actors. And yeah. I think yeah. a lot of studios, the studios forget that a lot of times. They're not just, mm-hmm. they're not just suit performers. They're actors. Well, you could, you could totally tell when you get mm-hmm. one or the other. And, you know, yeah. and, and again, I'm not trying to insult anyone, but if you look at... Uh, you look at George Wilbur in Halloween 4 or 6 or Dick Warlock in Halloween 2 you know who's playing those people whereas you you watch Brad Laurie in Halloween Resurrection you don't remember anything about that movie mm-hmm. you know what I mean and I'm not insulting Brad Laurie I'm just saying like you could totally tell you know what I mean you could totally tell who's fitting it uh, you know it's Kane Hodder when, when you're watching you know those four movies you know it's right. Ted White if you're watching Final Chapter I don't remember much about Freddy versus Jason other than the movie's pretty entertaining and that Jason's kind of on morphine the whole time, basically. Like, you know what I mean? So Kane Hodder, is to your point, he's more than a stuntman. He is an actor. He really, I think, is the definitive, even though he's not my favorite Jason, he is a definitive Jason as far as that, And he's proven himself so much even since then. I mean, yeah, it's a small touch. But playing Victor Crowley's dad in the Hatchet series, it really gave yeah, us a, a side of gave us a side of Kane that we hadn't seen before, mm-hmm. you know. And I I think that really shows. Or if you watch the documentary that uh, was it last episode, or I can't remember, but uh, whoever was talking about the documentary, the Kane Hodder one, so 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 fucking good, and it really shows the personality behind these people. They're definitely not just stuntmen, and that's another reason that I will challenge Stephen Culp to a fist fight till the <laughs> day I die. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree. So above and beyond that, with Ronnie Yu doing some reading and some digging, it sounds like the actors did not get a lot of support from him on set, that they were kind of left to their own devices. Well, it's kind of like the uh, it's kind of like the Friday the Thirteenth three part. You know, you you have Steve Miner, who was so hands-on in the second one, and then you get Friday the 13th 3, where they're so concerned about outside things, like 3D, that the people are just kind of told just to do their job, you know? And, I, I mean, for a film that had taken so long to develop, like as Freddy's versus Jason did, you would think that everything would want to be, every single person would want to be hands-on to make this as good as possible. Mm-hmm. So, again... This is going to turn into Jerry talking shit on Ronnie Yu, and I apologize any big Ronnie Yu fans, whoever the one of you are out there. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's a testament to making the wrong decision as a director. 
you want a director, especially in a film like Freddy versus Jason, we've been waiting over a decade for it. You want a director that's actually going to be able to deliver good performances. You know, like an actor's job is not just to act. It's to follow the director's lead. And I don't mean the director telling them what to do, but their guidance, their lead. And if you don't get a solid director to do that, you don't get good performances. And I'm not saying that, you know, as anything bad about the actors, but it's just a fact. And I think, you know, Alex, why don't you weigh in here? Because you are a filmmaker yourself and you're someone that works within genre films. And it doesn't matter with a short or a low budget. How do you, because it seems like to Jerry's point, the effects were everything in this movie at the expense of the performers overall. How do you find a balance between like, we need to add some really cool effects versus we want some really believable performances overall? Uh, I mean, it's, it's not easy. You kind of have to go in knowing you're going to focus more on one than the other, just kind of the nature of the beast, especially when you're working independent, no budget. I mean, it shouldn't have been as big a problem on Freddy vs. Jason when you have an entire cast and crew. Um, but I think in this case, it probably boils down to the disconnect to the material. I think, Ronnie, you as an outsider to the genre probably thought, oh, people care about the effects. Like, that's what drives people to the movies, which to some extent, he's not wrong. But I mean, we don't only love it for the gore. I mean, we love it because we also connect to the characters. We love the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where that disconnect comes in. And it's unfortunate because, like you said, there there is a good cast in there. Um I'll agree that that Kelly Rowland was probably miscast, but beyond that, I think the main cast is pretty solid all around. Um, but just mm-hmm. not maybe not up to their best potential if if the director's heart right. wasn't in it. Right. Well, I I, I directed a, a film in 2016 called Love Is Dead, and uh, it's depressing as hell. And uh, that film ex- ex- is an example of the kind of stuff that. I like to direct or I like to write because I like to focus on performances. That's always the most important thing to me. So I'm not good at writing horror. So I try to, I try to stay in like the dark drama kind of shit. But I I feel like if you get a director who finds that stuff just as important as the slasher elements, Freddy versus Jason would have been, you know, better in my opinion Mm -hmm. you need you need to sympathize for your protagonists to care that they're facing the antagonist you know what i mean and with the exception of shit nobody i mean i i like the performances in the movie but i mean i can't think of a single character that i'm just like oh man i really hope they make it out you know whereas you watch final chapter and every single person you want to get out of that Mm -hmm. situation freddy versus jason you're just like well that's cool you know (laughs) yeah I wonder if... Oh, I'm sorry. Nope, you first, Alex, please. Uh, I was going to say, I wonder if if there was a disconnect in English not being Ronnie Yu's first language. Maybe he didn't... I don't know. He, he was certainly fluent in English, don't get me wrong. He was perfectly... Mm-hmm. And a perfectly good director in his own right. But I wonder if, like, maybe he didn't... I don't know. I just feel like it'd be harder to judge a performance if, mm-hmm. if it weren't your first language. I mean, I can only speak English, so who am I to say? But I wonder if that played any part in it. I think that played a part in it. They they do talk about like maybe a little bit of a limited command of English at that time. I think a big thing, and this is from Doug Curtis, one of the producers of the film. He says that Ronnie was very moody. He could be really difficult to work with. And he would go into these depressive funks. And anyone that's suffered with depression, 
I've had my bouts with it. I know how hard that can be, and I don't mean to make light of it. Um, it can be a son of a bitch. It can rob you of all your energy, of all your will to do anything. Um, there's talk of like on set, he would go into these massive depressive funks where no one could get through to him, and he just looked out of it. And that not only hurt the movie, it hurt the performances because – you know, you're looking there you're, as a performer, you're looking for feedback from your director and you see that it looks like he should be anywhere else except the movie at that time. Um, and I think that kind of plays into some of the choices that were made. Well, was, even yeah. uh, even Jason Ritter, I mean, I can only imagine what he went through. I mean, he's coming in late in the game to replace Brad Renfro, you know, and, and for someone coming into a film that late in the game, they probably want a good course on being brought up to speed by the director so Mm -hmm. for jason ritter to come into this movie and get a director that's really kind of like hands off and kind of dealing with his own stuff at the same time like man that must have been Mm -hmm. hard absolutely i think the one thing where it helped is the cast set really bonded they kind of realize like all right we kind of get through we need to get through this together so the teenagers in it kind of formed their own clique and got really close to one another while making the movie overall and let's be honest like nobody is going to direct robert england as freddy krueger at this point right can we all agree that like oh, yeah. robert england's going to direct himself better than yeah. anybody yeah i feel uh, like if ronnie you had tried to direct robert england as freddy he would have just walked up to Ronnie you and just said, hold my beer and just went with it. <laughs> I mean, so, that's somebody that had been playing Freddie since 1984. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I you, you don't need this. You don't need this new guy that doesn't give a shit about your character telling you like, what to do. It's like every now and then, like when you look at Twitter and someone's like, it's like someone will make a comment and they'll be like, well, do you even know about like blah, blah, blah? And it's like, so we're like, um, yeah, he has a doctorate in that field. Or, you know, he's written definitive works on that field. My, yeah, my, my favorite is, uh, yeah, yeah, that's my favorite one when someone's like, oh, yeah, I guess you've seen The Wire. I saw this recently. Someone was talking shit to a guy saying, well, I mean, have you even seen have The Wire? Have you even seen and The it, Wire to David it's Simon? Like the dude that like produced it or wrote it. It was David Simon, the creator of The Wire. He's like, uh. <laughs> I think the guy tried to backtrack, like, oh, I knew he did the. It's like, no, dude. Yeah. No, come on. Okay. So let's talk about. I think we've shit on Ronnie Yu enough. I think that, you know, because we try not to be one of those, like, let's crap on everything podcast, because that's no fun. And I turn stuff like that off. Let's take yeah. a few minutes to talk about the things we like about this movie. We're, we're, and I think, you know, Alex, I'd love to start with you because you're, you went into this movie with like the least amount of knowledge of the series and maybe like the least expectations. Like, what about it really appealed? Like, what, when you look at it now, like, what's still jumps out to you is like damn that really works for me uh so i just revisited this movie in preparation for the episode and i mean i've seen it countless times because i mean i loved it so much when i was 15 or whatever but honestly i it just it works for me i think i think the simplicity is key the in getting the two characters together because they do exist in such separate worlds i mean they're both slashers but i mean they're pretty far on the slasher spectrum away from one another i mean freddy is such a divergence from all the slashers um but i love how simple it kept the story because then it still feels like a slasher so many of those scripts we talked about in the last episode um like there's cool concepts and like cool ideas and very talented writers but like at its core they just didn't feel like a slasher movie or some of them even didn't feel like a horror movie for that matter um so 
like from point A, like you know, I was sold on that. And then beyond that, I, I love the flourishes. Um, I, I do think the cast is fun. You mentioned um, that they kind of banded together, and I think some of that camaraderie kind of translates to the screen. Um, Jerry, you're you're not wrong that no one you're you know you're not super rooting for anyone, but I mean, I think the characterization is pretty decent. Um, they're the uh, who's like the uh, blanking on his name now, Chris Marquette's character, Linderman. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, yeah like his his was one death where i was like oh you know this, this still kind of kind of hits mm-hmm. me um well because the whole movie he's a nice character exactly. and the whole movie he's just trying to be a part of it and kelly Rowland's character treats him like absolute shit and he yes. still dies for her yes yes and he like, we all know that kelly Rowland wouldn't be the member of destiny's child and anybody would die for and he stands up for him part of it too what i really like about him he stands up like he tells um kelly Rowland's character off like he tells her like you know you're making i thought you used to make fun of me because you thought i was a dork or a nerd but you really just don't like yourself i I really like that moment that seems like like a classic kind of like i mean it sounds funny to say but almost like an elm street final girl moment where it's like yeah you you feel like this character kind of becoming themselves um and standing the up film, the film has a decent amount of that and what's interesting is i mean yeah i joke around about like not liking this movie because i don't really care for it but with that being said it has a lot of really entertaining sequences for me i mean the the uh the uh, cornfield scene oh probably like the whole, the whole sequence is so good and those those kind of throwaway characters you know like the the two dudes that are so into like just drinking the everclear yeah like they're funny and and yeah you get one of them that basically becomes uh uh you know uh, a jay from jay and silent bob mm-hmm. but that's another thing that was changed i mean shannon and swift didn't write the character like that at all that was a studio thing saying you know what let's cash in on jay and silent bob characters the character wasn't written like that in the script but i do feel like it is kind of funny to follow why any word as to why the character was changed? Like in 2003, after Jay and Silent Bob strikes back, why is anyone writing in a not like a very clearly clear stand-in for Jason Muse? Well, when that when Freddie Versace went into production, it would have been pretty fresh off of Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, and I think that was Kevin Smith's biggest movie at the time in terms of box office. So, like, I I get the mentality. I mean, it's a terrible, stupid decision. And it dates it so well now, or so poorly, I should say now. But like, I guess I understand the mentality. It was like, oh, that did well. We need to do that to also uh, do well. I, 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 if I remember correctly, in Crystal Lake Memories, there was that part where the actor that played that character was so taken back and confused why there was a, basically a Jason Mewes wig waiting for him and yeah. a beanie when he got to set. He was like, <laughs> what? Why am I doing this? You know, we got this question on Twitter, and I want to credit the right person. We're going to jump ahead because it dealt specifically with the cast right here. I oh, can't. I remember that that question. Uh, the the listener set, asked the question: the why cast uh, Catherine Isabel in a role and not yes. have her be the lead? Yeah, so let's find that right over here. Okay, God damn it. Um, I can't find it. Okay, they want to know like why was Cat? Yeah, it, okay. Now I'm getting slap happy. Um, why was Catherine Isabel cast but not the lead? I love everything about Catherine Isabel. 
I think she's just got this awesome charisma. Obviously, we know her from Ginger Snaps, um, from American Mary, and also her role in Hannibal, uh, one of the best television adaptations of any property ever. Um, she makes- uh, that question was from Jinx, uh, Jinx1981, who is Jason Jenkins, the host of Scream Addicts. He asked that question. Thank you. Um so why would you not like you see her like why not give her this i think she would have killed it in the lead role i think she would have but at the same time as an actor whether you're Catherine isabel or not being Mm -hmm. in a film that you know will definitely be big on the screen and like alex said you know butts will be in seats Mm -hmm. uh, i could i could imagine how she was just like you know what the role small but hey i'm gonna go for it Mm -hmm. because this is guaranteed to be watched as opposed to you know Ginger Snaps, which we all love, but I mean, let's face it, the movie wasn't like massively successful, you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, she's masterful in Ginger Snaps, and I think she's objectively a better actress than Monica Kina, but I'm sure she just the opportunity to be in a movie this big. I mean, I think this is still probably the biggest movie of her career, um, and I'm sure she doesn't take that lightly. I'm sure she was excited mm-hmm. for the opportunity. Of course, if, if, we were directing it i'm sure we would have given her the lead role if given the opportunity but i think the fact that she went from the ginger shops movies to this was like just like a cool move for horror fans in general just to see her in such a big movie well i mean prior to freddy versus jason i think one of the most recent things right before that that she had done was insomnia with christopher that's right i forgot she did that that's such an interesting step to go from christopher nolan and insomnia to ronnie fuck you and freddy Mm -hmm. versus jason yeah, that was right before this, I think, yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, Carrie, the TV movie as well, she'd appeared in uh, as well. Um, yeah. So I just, I, I find her, like, just to be such a, a fascinating and just wonderful actress. And that's a coded way of me saying I have a massive crush. That and that's the, the scenes that she's in, like, the whole sequence with the boyfriend that is such, you know, that misogynistic, toxic bro boyfriend that you want to see get mm-hmm. killed. Yeah. So that whole sequence, you know, when she's taking a shower while her boyfriend's getting stabbed repeatedly and folded mm-hmm. like a sandwich. Like Which it's is one a of the best kill. Oh, it's great. I I think it's one of the best kills in the whole series. Yes. I mean, it's such good such a good sequence, I think. It is. And I just what do we think of like her the way they kind of play her like drinking problem for comedy? I see that's always been weird for me because I mean I'm pretty open about my experiences on, on this. It's great because I had a, a listener reach out to me and kind of talk about some of his experiences based mm-hmm. on an episode. So, I mean, if I could help, that's great. But at the same time, as someone who alcoholism has always run in my family and it's been a huge problem for me in my adult years, you know, like alcoholism is it's it's a huge demon that I still have to face every day unfortunately so i think just to have a discounted like oh here's some high schooler with a drinking problem waka waka like it's mm-hmm. kind of shitty to be honest i i thought right. that when i saw it in the theater and i think that now as as a 38 year old person like i think it sucks and mm-hmm. that's not something that's not a joke I, I i don't i don't think that's a joke whatsoever yeah that's something i that didn't really register with me when i first saw it, but certainly did when i was like i said i just recently rewatched this for this um that's something that i don't think would fly in a movie today and rightfully so i mean it's not something to joke about um i guess you can chalk it up to different times but it's it's a weird weird choice um but well, I mean, she does does well with the role times, but 
Yeah, well, even different. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. It was different times. But even with that being said, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that I feel like, <clears throat> and I'm not trying to be like, you know, the 2019 police, you know, trying to like make sure everyone's woke. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's everyone's personal journey. But at the same time, stuff like that drinking thing or the line that I don't know if it's Goyer or Ronnie Yu or whoever used it, the very homophobic slur that's mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. I mean, I even at the time watching it, it was just like, right. ouch, like that's that's rough. And what sucks is stuff like that or the homophobic slur, all that stuff. Like I said earlier, that 100 percent gets blamed on Shannon and Swift, and they didn't even write that. Shannon and Swift have always been very adamant and upfront about saying we did not put the faggot line in this script. There's no place for it in our script. There's no place for it in any script. Do not pin this on us to their well, credit. That's, I mean, what sucks about these movies is a lot of people who don't they're not really knowledgeable about filmmaking in general. They don't realize that a lot of people get rewritten and it still falls on that person, whether it's mm-hmm. Shannon Swift or Todd Farmer with Jason X, how much hate mail has that guy got when that script is nothing like the script that he turned in. Right. It says written by Todd Farmer, but that's very much like a lot of stuff rewritten. And it's the same with Freddy versus Jason, like Shannon and Swift. Yeah. They wrote Baywatch. I understand that, but I mean, it does have the rock in it. So I'll give him that. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> They're not bad screenwriters. I mean, they wrote the Friday 13th remake, which I think is one of the best sequels in the whole series. Absolutely. I think it's a phenomenal. I can't wait to talk about that next week because there's a lot to like about that movie overall. There really is a lot to like about that movie overall. Um, so I could talk about Catherine Isabel all day. Cause I just think she's, again, uh, if you're listening, Miss Isabel, um <laughs> I am married, but I could change that. There are steps we have. I could... <laughs> so, so what? I'm married, but I could change so, that. But no, like, I'm sure you're, look, you're, you're look, just going to really appreciate it. My <laughs> wife is a huge fan of the Supernatural show, and she makes me wear a Jensen Eccles mask every time we make love now. Okay, so... <laughs> All right, that doesn't happen. Love you, Claire. You're over in England. Is she really a huge fan of Supernatural? She, oh, I turned her on to that show and I stopped watching it season five. She is so all in on that show. Um, What do we think of Monica Kina? Monica Kina is great in the movie, I I think. I I mean, I I don't think she's as solid as a lot of the uh, protagonists we've got in the past and I, I i overuse the word protagonist just because i really don't like the whole like final girl scream queen kind of label thing it's just kind of mm-hmm. weird to me but i i don't think she's a jenny or an alice or an alice in nightmare on elm street or any of that but she, she i mean she kicks ass you know what i mean like monikina's character she she's the person that when everyone's thinking about what to do she does it so mm-hmm. i mean i i like the character for that aspect yeah i agree she's she's not She's not top tier protagonist uh, for either franchise, but I mean, I think she's solid. I don't think she's bottom tier either. Um, I think that her performance is solid. Um, again, like I said, we might have got a better performance out of Catherine Isabel, but we'll never know. I think what we got, like, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's pretty solid. I really love her in the show Undeclared. I think she's a great comedian. Yeah, yeah, um, she was great in that. That is again from the creators of Freaks and Geeks. Like that was a show I think a little bit ahead of its time. Um, and I thought she was like terrific. And I think that goes to like, how many people came out of that show that went on to have like really solid careers. So you think about uh, that. Tons. So it's just and it's I think holds up to this day as a really funny she's, kind of uh, college. Comedy. It's also great in another remake that I feel gets unfairly judged, and it's actually one of my favorites, and that's Adam Girash's Night of the Demons remake. Mm-hmm. It, it's a fun, fun, irreverent, just, oh, God, it's so mm-hmm. entertaining. And, yeah, Monica Keene is pretty good in that, too. I think I've seen that once and don't and Edward Furlong, Edward, like, bloated Edward okay. Furlong is my favorite Edward Furlong. Okay, I need to add that into my, like, have to watch this again list right now. Because I remember enjoying it, but if you held a gun to my head right now, I couldn't tell you a single thing about the Night of the Demons remake. It, and it that's... has one of the best soundtracks okay. ever. I mean, you get typo negative, concrete blonde, so many great, great. All right. I need to go back and rewatch this then. And that's to me saying I don't remember anything about it. It's not a knock on that movie. It's more like I just don't remember at this point. Okay. So we touched on this a little bit in the last episode at the end. But now let's talk about in a little bit more detail. How do we feel Freddie and Jason are portrayed in this movie? Do we feel they're given enough screen time each? Do we feel that they're portrayed in an accurate way that is true to their characters? What do we think? Um, I touched Uh, on this in the last episode. I I think of the scripts that we know of, that we have the knowledge of, um, I think this is the most accurate portrayal for both of them. Maybe some might have been a little stronger in one direction or the other. But Mm -hmm. I think in terms of capturing both of them in one script that also, you know, is a successful script. this does the best. Um, I can't defend the Jason being afraid of water. Um, I understand, like, you know, maybe it was kind of a little more metaphorical because he's in the dreamscape and he's afraid of drowning. Uh, that argument could be made. But in general, I mean, that's a little little off-putting. But beyond that, I, uh, I think they're both pretty true to form um, on the page and on the screen. I think Jason is the Jason that we love when Freddy's not around in the movie. When Freddy's mm-hmm. involved, when Freddy's involved, I just can't get on board with that Jason. But uh, scenes like the cornfield and stuff like that, where Jason's just mowing people down and not giving a shit, like it's fun to watch Jason in those. It's it's the stuff where, I mean, nobody wants to see their favorite slasher have another slasher basically talking shit about him and to him for ninety minutes. You know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of like. It's kind of like the thing where you could. Are you guys there? Yeah, I'm yep. here. Oh, sorry, I thought you disconnected. It's kind of like that thing where you can make fun of your brother as much as you want, but someone else does. You kind of want to hand them their ass, mm-hmm. and that's how Freddy versus Jason is to me. Like that's I can say really all the things. It, it, you know, that's how I feel. It's just like you could. We could talk as much shit about Jason and being maggot face and everything else as much as we want. But Freddy just basically treating him like he's a dog for the whole mm-hmm. movie. It's it's just kind of like, you know what? Fast forward to that end battle because I want to see Freddy get his, get his ass kicked, you know? I think it's accurate to how Freddy would look at Jason, but it does make it tough to watch at times. Well, yeah. But, I mean, I understand the approach. I mean, Freddy's always been like that, but it's just like we, as a fan of Friday the 13th, we had watched 
10 movies with this character before and on this this 11th movie with him in it is basically he's treated like a little bitch the whole time mm-hmm. it, it's it's man and i think this is the difference between a again i'm going to say it stunt man playing the role and someone like kane hodder i think kane hodder would have asserted himself on set and have made some very different choices as to how the interactions between Freddie and Jason would have gone. I think he would have said, this is not how Jason would act. Jason's not going to be a little bitch to this guy that he towers over. It could rip apart in the real world. Do you think that might have played a part into why Kane Hodder didn't get the job? Because they knew that he wouldn't stand for that? It's possible. I think that there's no one factor that goes into it overall. Um, but, you know, if that's the case, I think that kind of sucks. Did you ever, this is a sidebar, but uh, I meant to mention earlier when we were talking about this. Do you ever, I don't know if you guys watched Holliston, but do you ever see the episode of Holliston yeah. where Kane Hodder, you know, kind of comes to terms with not being in Freddy vs. Jason, I think, mm-hmm. in a comedic way? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I love that episode. Yeah, me too. I just think that, that was such a cool thing for him to do, for Adam to do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's 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 kind of making light of a very dark situation, yeah. but I think it probably helped Kane, you know, on a personal level, kind of accept it. I think you're probably right. I think I think that's a, an accurate statement. So I said this a little bit before. I think this is a phenomenal portrayal of Freddy Krueger. Um, Robert England always gives it his all. Now I think by part five of the Elm Street series, he had kind of gotten a little bit off the rails, a little bit. Um, a little bit. You know, you get to and to quote our friends over at Halloweenies. So if you're not listening to that, oh my goodness, they cover they have covered both Halloween and the Elm Street series with such dedication and they're just such great listens. Um, you know, like they're very kind of saying that it's a boy moment is like when Freddie kind of went jumped the shark at that point. Um this is a much more restrained and I think much truer to the original portrayal of Freddy Krueger. Like, I think in our last episode, we said how you can't make Freddy or Jason scary again. And Freddy is outright scary in some of the sequences here. I okay. love I love the opening sequence that dives into Freddy's history. And you have, like, Robert England without the makeup in his basement with this little girl trapped and you just know what's going to happen. And she's terrified. And he plays it with such sadistic glee. And then it cuts to him licking a picture of her and putting it in his scrapbook. And I thought the scrapbook was a really wonderful touch. Um, the scene with Mark when he gets killed. Um, and how it's the one Freddy kill in the movie. And how sadistic that is. And when Mark is like, I'm not going to be your messenger, you see the wheels turning in England's head as Kruger and how he's going to make him suffer a thousand times more for not doing his bidding. I think that's really wonderful. And he still becomes the messenger. Yes. Most definitely. Freddie and Freddie versus Jason reminds me of uh, those dudes that just beat their wives. You know? And he basically, they, they push them down and tell them they're not going to be anything. And when they finally stand up, that's when they act out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, that, that that kind of dude that just 
not even just beat their wives, but just like those kind of like really toxic males in general. Mm-hmm. You know that that. Do you know what I mean though? Like he's he's that kind of guy that is he could push someone down and put them down and make them feel like shit. But as soon as they step up, it's just like oh no. Oh no, not yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, I was I was just joking, bro. Yeah, I was just, kind of just joking. Yeah, and I'm the victim. Never mind. Yeah. It's like the person, you know, like I live, even though I'm in Mass, even though I'm in Massachusetts, which is a very, I, one of the more liberal states, thankfully, I live in what they call the cranberry corner. It tends to run a lot more conservative. And I pretty much have stopped using Facebook except for their marketplace. So I can like find really cool shit cheap. Um, yeah. Because like I just found my mental health going right down the drain every time I looked at my town's Facebook page, where you would have like these fucking assholes posting memes of kids in cages and making jokes about it. And then when you would call them on it, it would be like, oh, you triggered, bro? Like, why are you so triggered right now? It's like, well, I'm triggered because you're like laughing about human suffering and you're an asshole. Well, that's, that's the thing. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to alienate any of our conservative listeners if we have any oh god uh, if you no, I, I don't mind I'm joking, I'm joking i'm joking i don't no, mind but, but what i'm saying is server listeners no, but what, what i'm saying is it's like those keywords that like, they like to throw out anytime mm-hmm. that you're not even just offended but sometimes you call them on shit oh you triggered are you a snowflake are you are they they throw all these terms that they learned from fight club which is a mm-hmm. book and a movie made to make fun of them right <laughs> that's the funniest part you know, they throw all these fight club terms, and it's just like, do you not get that Chuck Palahniuk was making fun of you, motherfuckers? Like, they are you know the what I mean? First persons to piss and moan and cry if you like come at them with anything. They're the first ones to be like to cry about it, basically. So, all right, um, <laughs> let's talk about. You guys have both kind of mentioned in passing. Let's talk about Jason's fear of water. He, he doesn't have one. <laughs> <laughs> No, like I, you know, I've, I, in that same interview that I was talking about with Shannon and Swift, they even mentioned that uh, uh, it was more of a symbolic thing. And even maybe Ronnie, you admit it as more of a symbolic thing that that is his fear of drowning. So I understand that. But I, I think maybe it just missed its mark as far as delivery to where it just mm-hmm. looks like Jason is terrified of water the whole time. Because he sees any bit of water and he's just like, you know, that scared little boy again. It doesn't come off right. Something feels off. Because like you said, like we had a whole movie of Jason on a fucking boat, right? Yeah. You know, a whole right. movie of that. He's on a boat. He doesn't care. He's. It's not even that he's just on a boat. He gets into the water. He walks he to swims. New York underwater. He walks to New York under – he walks to Vancouver under <laughs> – Right. He, I mean like who's the, who's the fucking swimmer? Why can I not think of his name right now? Because we're three hours into a show about Freddy versus Jason, my brain is mush. Who's like the twenty-time gold medalist? Michael fucking... Phelps. Yeah, he's Michael Phelps, and Jason goes to <laughs> Manhattan. He's like does the fucking breaststroke from Crystal Lake to Manhattan, basically in record time. Like he gets there two minutes after a rowboat does. This is not a guy afraid of water. I can picture when I think about Jason swimming to Manhattan, I could picture those really dramatic, over dramatic. Really like symphony based sequences in the last house and last house on the left remake, you know, when Mary's swimming back and forth and there's that huge dramatic swell of strings. I can I picture Jason doing that. <laughs> Bunch of cellos and violins as he does the backstroke to Manhattan. Right. right. It's, um, 
It's an odd choice. Uh, I don't know. What would you have done instead, though? In the defense of Shannon Swift, what could you have done to gain a psychological edge on Jason? Aside, you know, the mother is obviously maybe part of it, but he's not afraid of her. That's where they set it up. I think they set that up and didn't deliver on that. The fact that Freddie used the image of Jason's mom to kind of like get him to do those things at the beginning. I feel like they should have expanded it on that. Use that as the catalyst because Jason isn't afraid of his mom, but he loves his mom and will do anything for her no matter what it is. Why not exploit that instead of just throwing the water thing into it? Which Betsy Palmer was asked to come back and reprise her role. She said, pay me. They said no. And she said, well, no, thanks then. (laughs) That's that's what I don't get. It seems like that's a lot of things. You know, Kane Hodder said that, you know, they offered him one small thing. He thought it was negotiation. Betsy Palmer, they won't pay her. It's like these people don't realize that you spent six million dollars on shitty scripts for mm-hmm. the development, but you can't you pay sh- Betsy Palmer the price of a really cheap car. That's you what you s- got for the original. Buy your car. S- you spent six million dollars and all you got for almost ten years was Dominic fucking <laughs> necros so it was worth every penny is what you're saying it, 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 yeah right. so yeah uh, the six million dollar man right <laughs> so alex what do you think of the whole like how would you have handled the whole jason is afraid of drowning how would you have made that work or what would you have done in place i don't know that's a really good question i never thought about it um i think the him being afraid of drowning, like I'm fine, I can buy that, and I like the the little the little dream sequence we see of him drowning. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, we get to see Crystal Lake like as a functioning camp for yep. the only time in the movie, so that's like a fun little sequence. Um, I guess I don't know. I just wish maybe somehow in the fight because the fight was in the dream world. I don't see why um, Freddy couldn't have just brought him there immediately. Why do they have to have that? brawl i mean i like seeing the brawl in the boiler room don't get me wrong but then jason gets the upper hand and the water stops him why not just i mean freddy's in control there that's his world why not somehow just i don't know make the whole room fill up with water and he drowns in that mm-hmm. or just fucking hard cut to the crystal mm-hmm. lake like it's the dream world he can do whatever he wants and i do like in that dream sequence where you see what life must have been like for young jason getting tormented by yeah. the other counselors and kids. Yeah, because like, you really don't see that in, in any uh, of the Friday 13th movies. Uh, it really plays into the sadistic nature of, you know, and because, like, you have Freddy Krueger, who's a child killer and a child molester, and he's tormenting a child. And yeah. I think that's really a nice creepy touch. Yeah, oh, but I, unlike, I, some I, those, unlike some of those... Unlike some of those other scripts he doesn't you know it doesn't alter their history but it brings them mm-hmm. together you know with child it, it brings them together but i also feel like it's a missed opportunity for jason to get a public defender lawyer again <laughs> and who how does jason get again we we were talking about in part two how does jason find alice like what transport is he taking to get from crystal lake which is in new jersey to springwood which is in ohio <laughs> like that's a well, fucking... this is those ideas that you never want to see realized. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I love I love Halloween five. Love it. But I would be lying if I said every single fucking time I see Michael Myers behind bars mm-hmm. doesn't make me cringe. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> like 
You don't want to see that. No. I don't want to see Jason with a public defender, like, talking to him before the the, the case, asking him if he agrees with this deal. Right. Like, it's, it's silly. Okay, guys. I think we've gotten to that point. Let's All talk right. about what we actually came here to talk about. The actual Freddy versus Jason. How does this fight go for you? Does it does it meet the expectations of Jerry Smith, who has been a fan of this movie since the mid '80s, has been sneaking into the theaters at way too young of an age to watch part five, part six, part seven. Now you have your two big icons on screen, and they are going. They are doing their Rocky Balboa versus Clubber Lang impression. Jerry, what do you think? This is what I think. Everything that had been leading up to that moment, me watching this franchise since I was a little kid, hyping me up for the big showdown that would eventually come. And while I was in the theater, and while I could watch it every single time and be unimpressed for the movie, that last fight scene, holy shit. It is like sitting through Rocky V just for that street fighting scene at the end. That, this is... that, the fight between Freddy versus Jason, it lands on in every single way for me. It's the rest of the movie that doesn't, but that fight is so fucking good. This is Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 3 in the Silver Oh, Dome. man, when he picks him up. In front of 93,000 Hulkamaniacs body slamming the Giant. I mean, or that's what it's this like, is. It's like Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania when Warrior beat his ass. You know, like, oh, I I'm there. I cried. I cried. I cried some joy. Even though, like, Hulk Hogan, is, we've come to find out, is not a great person, I was such a Hulkamaniac back in those days. Like, this is what we've built up to for years. See, Alan, I, I, too had, I, too, had uh, been born in parts unknown, so I, I was rooting for Warrior. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you hero. and Mick Foley, a.k.a. Cactus Jack. Oh, no, Cactus Jack was... Truth and Consequences, Arizona. My bad. So, Alex, you're like seeing these guys for the really the first. Like you're seeing Jason for the first time. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, my my first viewing, uh, I didn't have all the hype behind it of mm-hmm. you know the legacy of films and the years of waiting. Um, but I was, I mean, I'm a little bit you guys, so I wasn't seeing those early WrestleManias. But I was big into this. Was like the tail end of the Attitude Era of WWE. Mm-hmm. So I was big into wrestling, and I mean, it played out like a like a hardcore match, basically. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I ate it up. I will say again, I don't mean to harp on the the old scripts too much, but like in the in the summaries we've read in Sasha the Titans and all that, I mean, it seems like none of them have as you know, some of them have like these epic final battles, whether they're in hell or whatever. But they seem to be like over in 30 seconds pretty much whereas mm-hmm. this one i mean it's a good chunk of it's like a lot of 10 minute fight scene and oh, it yeah. never gets boring they they change settings like three times mm-hmm. like organically um and it's just i don't know it's it's the perfect payoff i mean like when you think freddie versus jason this is what you want and it delivers on that tenfold that initial standoff with them as like the little boathouse they're in is a rough in flames yeah and they're facing one another down like how that is not a mondo poster that nobody can get their hands on except for like 50 people who buy all the copies and then sell it for 10 times the price because they're assholes how that's not like a mondo print that we all have on our wall is 
beyond me. And it's such a good moment. I remember when the trailer was first released, I had to download the trailer from AOL on my 56 modem. And it took like, it took like four hours just to download mm-hmm. the trailer. And you had that huge moment, that place your bets moment in the trailer, which I don't even think is in the it's movie. It's not in the movie. But, uh, yep, you're right. Which I think but it was it's such, such a, a good, it's a great trailer line, but it, I think it would have been cheesy in the movie. I'm kind of glad oh, no, no. Line, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not super bummed about it. It like hypes but, uh, I mean, it hypes you up, and that trailer just gets you that, that feeling of like, holy shit, what am I about to watch? And like I said, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the whole movie in general, but I mean, man, that end, I love it. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that moment in particular, what are some of the things that it definitely takes on a bit of a Looney Tunes side to it. And I think that's Ronnie Yu's his doing at that point. I think with some of the stuff with like um, some of the containers getting fired like rockets. But at the same time, I think Freddy, you understand very quickly that Freddy Krueger in the real world, he's simply not a match physically. For Jason Voorhees. Well, that they have that really great moment in it, and it's right after the awful homophobic moment. But mm-hmm. that moment where Kelly Rollins is talking shit to Freddie nonstop, mm-hmm. you know, and Freddie just has, has this like really devious look on his face, and he just kind of like winks at her and like motions behind her, mm-hmm. and then Jason just takes her out, and it goes right towards the fight. Like it's, I love it. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I ever noticed before, or at least not consciously, like how many people on wires just get like hit and then get thrown 50 feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely. Definitely kind of feels like a like a comic book or like a Looney Tunes, as you said, in, in that regard. Well, and there's I kind so of much like blood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's... So over the top in a good yeah. way. Yeah, this is definitely the time of like the Matrix and wire work and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Like, and this is the time where it's like every movie that could was trying to emulate those kind of effects. So you definitely have that. And to be quite honest, at this point, you know, like Freddy Krueger on his own, scary. Jason Voorhees on his own, scary. Freddy versus Jason in like a winner take all match. There is something silly about it. There is something yeah. a bit. Here's comical. the deal: it's silly. It's silly until the very, very end, which mm-hmm. is a, in my opinion, a scary ass ending. When they're Talk on the dock, okay. When when they're on the dock and Fred, you someone starts walking up and you see the machete and you think it's Jason. It ends up being mm-hmm. Freddy, and he has this look. This evil as hell look, and it's terrifying. It's this mad, pissed off, I'm going to murder mm-hmm. you look. It's not the playful Freddy that we've known for movies after movies. It's the Freddy of part one and part two. Mm-hmm. That look, a look that I haven't seen on Freddy since part one and part two. Mm-hmm. It's scary right before Jason comes up and gets him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of the the... I mean, not only is it the, the climax of the fight, but it's also, like, the most brutal of the fight. Yeah. That's what, I mean, you know, we got fingers being cut off, arms being cut off. The And I love all the misdirects where, like, you know, you think, you see the machete, you obviously think Jason, then they pan up and reveal Freddy, then he gets the glove through. So, like, I, it just, it played like gangbusters for me, and it still mm-hmm. does, honestly. I think mm-hmm. it still works. I think that that last bit on the dock overall, it still really works overall. And I think it gave you 
physically everything that you, especially like Robert England. Well, I know that you have stunt work being done in there and too, but like Robert England for every moment he's on screen, like he is not a young man. Uh, and he still right. brings like such joy, such physicality, such like spryness to the role. Um, it, it's, and I think you got everything you could possibly want out of that fight, you know, and not only like to your point, Jerry, like Kelly Rowland's character buys it at that point, as do some of the other ones that are remaining. Like they're not only fucking up each other, but every chance they get to like kill the humans, like they haven't lost sight. They're like, oh yeah, we have a bunch of like shitty teenagers here that we have to fucking kill too. What? It's, it's kind of like that moment, and you see it in a lot of movies, where it's in, like, Jason Lives, or there's the moment, I think, in the new Halloween, where the, the slasher, the antagonist, has the choice of which direction to go. Does mm-hmm. Michael Myers chase after Allison, or does he go after, you know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Sartain and the cops, yeah. you know? And Jason Lives, does Jason go after Tommy, or does he go after Megan? Like, mm-hmm. it's it's a fun... That, that whole ending of Jason, or Brady versus Jason, it's fun because... Both both antagonists, both slashers, have the choice of like, okay, do we go after each other? Because this has been piling on. You know, Jason's tired of being picked on, and Freddy's tired of somebody standing up to him. Mm-hmm. You know, do we do that, or do we we get rid of the throwaway people who, in their mind, are throwaway people, but mm-hmm. are really the people that could fuck their world up? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's fun to watch that back and forth. And it's one of the things too, like what one of the things that's always confused me a little bit about Jason Goes to Manhattan. Like, is how single-minded Jason is. Like, to me, I've always pictured Jason as, like, he will kill just about anyone in his path. But when he's on that subway and there's, like, 50 people between him and Rennie and Scott, he he ignores them completely. Like, I just thought, like, Jason should have been, like, everywhere he could have gone, like, machete left and right, chopping off heads. Jason, to me is best represented as far as recent times in a movie that's not even a Friday the 13th movie, and that's 2018's Halloween. Mm-hmm. That sequence where Michael Myers isn't calculating who he's killing. He's just killing whoever yes. he feels led to kill. Right, mm-hmm. who that, that was in the wrong place at the wrong and time. That, that's my favorite part of that whole movie. It's because it takes everything that the character should have been for all those movies and does it. He, he's, not, he's not thinking of killing anybody. He's just... Phil's led to kill this person. Yeah. Not so much this person, but this person. And I think Jason's like that. Jason just, he should go for just killing, you know? It shouldn't be a calculative kind of thing. As soon as you mentioned Halloween 18, the first thing that came to mind was that single cut, like three minute sequence where he goes on a murder spree. Yep. Because to me, it was Michael Myers saying, I have been incarcerated for 40 years. I have now been let loose in a virtual candy store. And it's like, he doesn't know. Like, do you guys remember watching, like anyone here ever watch Bozo the Clown growing up as a kid? Yeah. So they used to have a game, like a kid would get a shopping cart and be let loose in a toy store for 60 seconds. And anything they could get in the cart, they were able to keep. And inevitably the kids never got as much as they wanted because like, what would you do? Like, how, where do you start, even start at that point, right? It's like a kid's dream come true. And it felt like that was like Michael Myers in Halloween 18. Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I can just do whatever I want. And it's beautiful because it's Halloween night and like no one knows who this guy is. It's 40 years. Like no one recognizes 
Michael Myers. He was a boogeyman 40 years. That's part of the beauty of like getting rid of all the continuity. Well, they talk down about it even. They make it like it's not even a big deal. Like the character of Dave in that same movie. He's just kind of like, well, you know, by today's standards, it's really not that big of a deal. Three people like that barely qualifies as a serial killer. (laughs) So not to get too off track. Okay. So I think that, you know, the, the, um, who, okay. My question, who wins? That's something that a lot of people asked us here on Twitter. Basically, the most important question, who wins? I'll let you guys go first. Um, I, I love the ambiguity of it. Um, I think that was such a smart way to go, especially after they had filmed that other terrible ending where, like, Will becomes Freddy, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a good way because it can be argued either way. It depend- like, you know, if you're a Jason fan, you're going to think Jason won. If you're a Freddy fan, you're going to think Freddy won. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm probably a little bit more of a jason guy but i mean objectively seeing freddie wink that leads me to believe freddie is still alive and this is in this scene that they were seeing is in jason's dream because it's so it looks dreamlike with all the fog and everything mm-hmm. um so i i, I think i'd vote for freddie i think the real winner is the friends we've made along the way <laughs> <laughs> this guy so all right jerry you're up uh okay and i i don't mean to keep bring in like the real like the toxic white male <laughs> analogies into it but the ending of freddy versus jason reminds me of that how uh s- say a woman that's been abused by her mate or someone finally gets the balls and steps up and defeats the hell out of that person there's always that bastard that still needs to talk a little bit more shit even though he just mm-hmm. got self handed to him you know and that's what the end of freddy versus jason is jason's holding freddy's head and freddy just has to give us that wink because he just got his head fucking chopped off but hey, he he won, you know. Like I, Jason wins. Jason wins. Freddie is the bagel guy, that wicked short dude that Freddy gets his head. is definitely the bagel dude. <laughs> oh, oh man, my God. not my father. Yeah, he's the bagel guy that gets his fuck. He talks a lot of shit, gets his head handed to him, and then is like on the news being like, "I don't like your attitude." And then like, gets a fucking reality show. Oh my right. god. 2019 is really the fucking worst timeline. Yeah. It's really of the all time the, when we most need a new Friday the 13th movie and we can't have one. We get the fucking I feel like Freddy. I feel like if Freddy was a real person and he, and he came out in 2019, he would end up with like a rap contract. Right. No, you know, it's like, no. oh, you know, you're a pedophile, you kill people, but hey, catch me outside. Like, We're that would get- be Freddy. He we're would be get, that bastard. We're going to get a reboot. Why didn't the bagel, you know, it's too bad the bagel guy didn't come out sooner because he could have played like chucky in the new child's play movie they wouldn't even needed a little doll all right that was too small for that oh i think we're gonna get an elm street reboot and the bagel guy is gonna play freddy krueger and i am gonna fucking lose my mind okay we're probably gonna get proven wrong but did you guys read that news thing that there's speculation that that secret horror film that james wan is directing for new line people are speculating that it could be a nightmare on elm street movie Oh, I, I did not hear that. I did not I, even I know he was doing that. I don't buy it, but I just read the news thing today, and I would so be down with that. I think it would be perfect. I think it would be so perfect for it's it. It's interesting because he's stepped down from doing Conjuring movies. He's not directing the new Conjuring. And, like, he's obviously, he can do these big blockbuster movies. He did Aquaman. He did mm-hmm. whatever Fast and Furious movie he did. Um, so it stands to reason that like the only thing that would get him back in the director chair for a horror movie would be something like pretty huge so how, i mean it, it could be how great would it be if like 
they just like three weeks before it comes out. James Wan is directed a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It comes out in three weeks. Bam. Because with you like, don't, like, you don't kind of like the Victor Crowley thing. You don't need to. Yeah, yeah it would just came out. But this would be bigger because it would get. It wouldn't be like a roadshow movie. It would be a huge. Well, they they tried screen. to do that with the Blair Witch kind of. I mean, they announced it as The Woods and then announced it as Blair mm-hmm. Witch, what, like two months before it came out? And I think yeah. then it did poorly. So I don't think well, any, unfortunately, a studio is going to take a risk like that. But I mean, it would be amazing. Here's the difference. And I say this is like my my big three, my favorite three horror movies of all time are American Werewolf in London, The Thing, and The Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project is still the most scared I've ever been. And I cannot wait to finally talk about that movie in depth um people hate that movie like even though it made a shitload of i hate them people hate that movie and it was pretty much a dead property people love a nightmare on elm street people love james one so you don't need to spend 50 million dollars in marketing you just need to give me a date let me know that robert england is back in the role just let Robert England have one more go at it. And then, you know what? Have that be the last Freddy movie. Make Elm Street movies without Freddy Krueger. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, mm-hmm. it's the same thing I said about Freddy vs. Jason. The, the title alone, if you have Nightmare on Elm Street, you have James Wan and you have Robert England. I mean, that movie's going to sell. That's going to do business. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, all right. So I think I, I would say, like, Jason wins the final fight. It's almost a draw, but when you're carrying around someone's severed head it's hard to like not call you the winner at that point <laughs> i think freddie is going to forever torment jason verbally and be like a real nudge um but you know it is fucking hard to not be declared the winner when you're carrying around some dude's severed head at that point i want Still. a sequel to castaway i want a sequel to castaway with <laughs> jason stuck on an island just with freddie's head Excellent, excellent. So the last thing we'll do here tonight, folks, how does Freddy versus Jason do at the box office? Does this 10-year journey pay off? I would yes. say so. It's the most, yes. it it's the most successful. On a $30 million budget and probably another $20 million to market it, they start doing some really fun shit. Like they have a weigh-in at Las Vegas. They have a press conference. It becomes a brouhaha. Um, the movie ends up making over $83 million domestically and a, almost half of that uh, overseas for about $115 million at the box office alone. And it makes a shitload of money on DVD as well. Like they sell a fuck ton of movies overall. So this movie is a massive success. Um, if Robert England never plays the role again, what a great way to go out. Like, what a way to go out on top if you're Robert Englund, right? Well, it's it's interesting that for both series, you follow up Freddy vs. Jason with two remakes of the movies. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, it's, I, I, it's crazy because they make so much money with the show-off right. movie. And then it's just like, you know what? Let's reboot both of them. And well, they so tried really ideas. hard. They, yeah, they tried really hard for Freddy vs. Jason versus Ash, and it seemed like it was going to happen for a while, but I guess Sam Raimi wasn't playing ball or, mm-hmm. or wanted too much creative control that, that the studio wasn't comfortable with, whatever the reason may be. 
Um, I don't know if you guys ever read the comics, but the they're actually really oh, the fun. Oh, I, yeah, right. I really wish we got the movie because I mean it seems like in the same vein more or less, but with Ash in the mix. Um, I think it would have been awesome. Sam Raimi, especially coming off the Spider-Man movies, having creative control over a property with Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger is, I think, every horror movie fan. Right, yeah. Right? Just start printing money at that (laughs) point. So that's sad that didn't happen. There was talk of, like, at the end of this movie, Pinhead was going to appear, and that would lead to, like... Jason versus Pinhead. There's all sorts of ideas that kind of come to pass. And like you said, Jerry, I actually put this in my notes. Like, this movie makes more money than either of these franchises ever had at any point, even at the height of their popularity in the 80s. So naturally, the next time you see Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger on screen, they're rebooted with none of the original participants having any sort of involvement whatsoever, of co- as you do six and seven years later. Yeah. It's kind of amazing that even even if, I mean, I know they, they actually put money into developing Freddy vs. Jason vs. Ash, and that, that fell through ultimately, obviously. But it's kind of amazing they didn't just fall back on, well, wait, we made it work once. I mean, we'll just do Freddy vs. Jason mm-hmm. 2. It, and not, granted, I don't think it would be nearly as successful because we've already seen it. They'd have to really, you know, rework mm-hmm. some things to make it exciting again. But it still seems like the the money it brought in, like it would just be, you know, a license to print more money. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you just think like everyone in Hollywood likes money. I mean, like, I don't, you know, like. I hear I, good I just, things about it. I'd like I, to have some someday. I would love to have right? some money someday. <laughs> um, so listeners, send us money. Um <laughs> it's it's like how do you like you know like look you have 20 other scripts you could fucking dust up and work from yeah you know it's like i don't you know get no us some dominic necros yeah. sad <laughs> dominic necros give us that dominic necros money all right <laughs> folks so let's answer a couple questions that we had we have we had gotten right here and then we're going right. to sign off for the night yeah, alex you are such a fucking trooper alex all right um, uh, thank you guys for having me so so from uh username chief broom uh chief underscore broom 73 he wants to know if anyone here and recording the show has screamed not my arm um has no no none of us have screamed that at this point right now Okay. Um, let's see. Same gentleman, worst issue for you guys. He, I am going to go with too much exposition, dialogue by Freddy, other characters, and how did Jason get out of hell? Um, I actually don't mind. I don't mind the Freddy exposition. I think his mm-hmm. his opening monologue. It's a little weird because he's kind of speaking directly to the audience, mm-hmm. but I think it's a pretty effective way to catch everybody up to speed. Um, and I love the like greatest hits of the Elm Street recap. Mm-hmm. I um, loved it. I was done too. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of the beginning of Friday Four, where they're you know use the campfire story and like you know the the best moments from the previous three. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Elm Street never really got that. So I really love that. And beyond that, I don't think Freddy has too much exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like which we touched on earlier. He's he has some wise cracks, but nothing like you know. Uh, Freddy's Dead or, or uh, Part 5. It's much darker. I think I, the, big, the biggest problem I have overall is a problem I have with a lot of horror movies from this time that continues. 
Um, I love Catherine Isabel. I love Monica Kina. I thought Jason Ritter was very well done. He's, he gets a very good performance. Um, I just don't care about the characters. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, a lot of the rewrites. Mm-hmm. You know, like you had everyone trying to get their own agenda through. You know, like the New Line people wanted more Freddy. The other people wanted more Jason. They wanted the characters to be like this. They wanted the characters to be like that. So a lot of it gets lost. It goes back mm-hmm. to that Shannon and Swift thing. They turned in a script that was 120 pages, which is mm-hmm. basically be two hours. They needed it. They were told to trim it down to 90. David Goyer came in, and what he did is he trimmed so many subplots and character development moments. That he took out a good amount of stuff that would have summed it up. And how do they mm-hmm. fix it? With basically Monica Kina basically telling the, the viewer what's going on. Right. And I, that's my biggest issue with it is that because of how much was chopped out of their script, like it relies on Monica Kina basically explaining everything to everyone. And it, yeah. it, that, it kind of I think that kind of talks down to your audience. And I kind yeah. of think, too, like know your audience because the people that are walking, they, you know, by and large, know Freddie and know Jason. Alex, you being the exception. But like <laughs> by and large, like I think even walking in, you had a pretty good understanding of the characters right yeah you know, this is not hamlet you know yeah like if you want to do hamlet versus macbeth for a movie then you might need a little bit more of an explanation but that's not what this is and i think uh to jerry's point like filmmaking 101 good filmmaking 101 it's it's show don't tell and we have a lot of telling instead of showing Hmm. um and that i i do think is a fault maybe not the biggest one but i do think monica kina kind of Mm-hmm. walking the audience through everything is a bit much but i also understand like from the studio's perspective and even just making my own movies um to put it bluntly, there's a lot of dumb people out there yeah, um, yeah there really are so right. like you do have to play to the lowest common denominator sometimes um and put things that over explain things so the idiots are on the same page as everyone else um and i think there was a little bit of that but certainly in the streamlining from 120 pages to 90 i mean I'm sure the vast majority of that was character beats that would have made these characters more well-rounded, less less one-dimensional. Um, and it's unfortunate that we lost that. Yeah. Last question, and then we're done. All right. the last oh my question. God. Let's do this. Four hours on Freddy versus Jason. <laughs> Dude, right? Uh, all right, from JD Tex at Julius, right. at Julius Barthelme. I am Let's mispronouncing that. If this, we kind of touched on this right now so if this movie was so successful financially compared to most of the previous entries why was there no sequel too because many it cooks. took a decade too many yeah. cooks and because it took over a decade to get this one made yeah too many cooks too many people thinking they had to be the smartest person in the room um robert england's also a little bit older so it might be tougher to have him like it, I'm sure that like being in this makeup, like it has to be grueling, even in, in yeah. your twenties, let alone being, I think in your fifties at this point. So, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the, you know, Monday morning after this opened and was making bank at the box office, there was meetings about a sequel and I'm sure they continued probably for years uh, before they finally gave up. But I mean, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate because I love the original continuity of both films, but also, I mean, it was a sign of the times. Um, all the slasher icons or horror icons or horror properties, whatever you want to call them, 
were being rebooted and most of them successfully, maybe not in terms of storytelling, but in terms of finances. Um, and I mean, that's kind of the studio mentality is like whatever's doing good for other people, we're going to do it too. So we, it's a proven formula, yeah. um, which kind of bit them on the ass around Elm Street, but that's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. So speaking of reboots, Jerry, why don't you tell them what we have coming up next week? All right. Next week we have the Friday Thirteenth remake, which is a sequel that gets, I think, a lot of criticism unfairly. I love the movie with a passion. I also think it's one of the best portrayals of Jason. Derek Mears is great. We have Ryan Larson from Ghastly Gurney coming back. Uh, last week I made the mistake of saying he was coming back for this episode because oh. I had my schedule thing mixed up. But uh, Ryan Larson is next episode for the remake. I uh, hope you guys enjoy it, and that will be the final Friday the Thirteenth episode. We are saying goodbye to the Friday the Thirteenth series after know, it's it been it me. seems pains sad i so feel like we're gonna have to play some sad like you know we're gonna have to play as we end the last show on friday the 13th is we're gonna have harry to have, manfredini's like, theme no, from the end of we're gonna have to have green days like time of your life playing in the <laughs> like the end of every do you remember how many yes yeah, every <laughs> TV finale of the 90s, you're right, had that, right. that time of my life like, by Green Day. Seinfeld, like the least model in show, like the most, like, <laughs> you know, of all time, like, you know, like, and now we must say You have some yeah. jaded, jaded breakup song that's played at graduations. It's like, yeah. what? Um, Jerry, would you mind, I want to edit this part out, would you mind if I put it an ask on Twitter, if we could get, a, like, a female guest, too, because we've had no females yes. for Friday 13th, I would and, like, be we've kind of, like, priding ourselves in being diverse, and it's like, we don't want to be a, a straight white male, uh, you know, a white male podcast, and we've had, like, 12 white males on for every... Yeah, no, we've uh, asked, I've asked some women, and they've been like, eh, I've just thought of Friday the 13th fan. Yeah, so. that's that's the only thing. Like, I try when I look for guests, I try to find people that are you know LGBTQ community or people that aren't just white dudes. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just unfortunately yeah. not a lot of people like Friday Thirteenth other than white dudes. It seems I've actually thought about switching teams just so we could not just have two straight guys. On right. This. All right, listeners, thank you so much for four hours almost or three and a half hours on Freddy versus Jason our most epic show to date. And I think it kind of is fitting because we have two of the biggest icons of modern horror. They really deserve a deep dive. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. This was a lot of fun. I can't wait to come back and talk about it when you do it for the Elm Street movies. I assume we're going to do another four hours. We're going to do a director's commentary on this episode. (laughs) Uh, So this is like... Thank you for putting up with our bullshit. Basically, <laughs> me in particular for four hours, but no, you this, are this was welcome awesome. The, uh, this, anytime. Uh, um, I will take you up on that at some point. Jerry, it is always a pleasure. Oh, most definitely, pleasure. man. We will be back um, next week with our last episode on Friday the 13th until they fucking settle this lawsuit and make another movie. Until then, sweet dreams, everybody. Hey everyone, thank you for down. Start that over again. Okay.